0: Good morning church family. How's everybody this morning? Good, 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 good. good. Uh, I assume the children have um, been dismissed already if they'd like to go to the children's program. We've got a couple folks who will lead them to that classroom. If you'd like to do that, you're quite, quite welcome to remain in service. So whatever, whatever you like. We'll turn with me in your Bibles to 1st Peter, 1st Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we'd love for you to be able to follow along with us, so we have some Bibles that we'll provide for you. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and one of the ushers will bring you a Bible. Anybody need one? Excellent. We're in 1 Peter, chapter 2. And uh, maybe Joe or Jeff, you might flip into the Bible real quickly and tell me what page number that's on. I have a little sword drill. Yeah. 1014. see Joe he's quicker right. so on page 1014 uh, in the Bible's there to provide it and, and let me tell you if, if you don't have a Bible at home either we would want you to take that Bible with you let, let that be our gift to you um, it's, it's a great blessing of joy to be able to have God's word in our language and be able to have it in our homes and so please take that with you as a gift from us first uh, Peter chapter 2. And before we get into the text, let me just say a a couple of words of of preface. Remember last week I was saying that we wanted to take these couple of Sundays, these two Sundays, and have a couple of messages that were really meant to be perspective-setting for us, really meant to sort of give us a a particular frame of mind as we get started as a Christian church and as a church family. And so last week we were in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verses 5 to 10, And you remember there where the Bible and the great apostle, the great starter of churches, the apostle Paul, said, listen, I I don't boast in me. I don't boast in my strength. I don't boast in anything I've done. I'm not going to make my boast uh, in any experiences that I have, but rather I'm going to boast in my weakness if I boast at all. The thing that I'm going to talk about the most are my weaknesses. And you remember why he said that. He says, because when I'm weak, then God is strong. That God's power is perfected in my weakness. And so as we begin, uh, as a church family, we, we don't want to begin with, you know, claims to being explosive and dynamic and fabulous, right? We're just people. We're just people. And if we're honest, we're weak people sometimes, aren't we? Right? Right? And what that text told us last week is our weakness is not a cause for shame. It's not. It's, it's reason to rejoice. Because if we would yield that weakness to God, then he would be strong in our lives. And, and that we want to remember that as a church family. And this morning, though, I want us to come in to consider something else. One of the questions that new churches always have to sort of work through and all the church gurus tell you to work through this and to settle this and to get it boiled down into a pithy little statement, and that's this. Who who are we as a church? Who are we? What's what's our identity? What's our our vision? What's What's our mission? And to sort of get that down in a nice phrase or a nice sentence and put that on all of your sort of church materials and announce to the world, this is who we are. And the temptation is to be clever about that. You know, to be kind of slick with it. To have a phrase that everybody remembers and a phrase that no other church quite has, right? So that sets you apart from all the other churches and, and you build this kind of identity, right? Well, I want to say answer that question this morning. But not in the way that you'll find in a lot of books on how to start a church. Not in the way that you'll find in a lot of blog posts uh, about being... Great church planters. I want us to answer it in an old-fashioned way. I want us to answer it with the word of God. And I want us to hear who God says we are. And I want that to be a source of rejoicing. Because even though we are weak, that doesn't mean we're insignificant. We have reason to boast in our weakness, and we have reason to rejoice over who God has made us to be. We're going to consider this morning really one verse of scripture, and you will marvel that we can talk for so long about one verse, but one verse of scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2, I want us to look at verse 9, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, and I want us to hear this for what it really is, the God of the universe speaking to us, but you are a chosen race, A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make your word clear to us, its meaning, its application, And by this, your word and our study of it, we might have our minds enlightened and our hearts might be glad at what you have done for us in Christ. Some would be strengthened in the faith and others would perhaps be brought into the faith for the very first time. Make your word living and active, sharp. Let it cut through and let us be healed by it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read this long verse again. 1 <laughs> Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now we are sort of parachuting down in the middle of this letter. And uh, the first word in our verse is that word, but. Now, but's a word that's kind of like a steering wheel in language. You you see the word but, and it turns the direction of the argument. It's sort of, you've been going in one direction, and you hit but, and it turns you around in the other direction. And so, one question for us to ask is, when we sort of consider our first question for this morning, who are we, is why does Peter, here in the text that we've selected, begin with but? Well, it's because he's contrasting with something that he has just said. Look back with me at verses 6 to 8. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Well, the first time I heard about this, this, this cornerstone and the stone that the builders rejected wasn't from the Bible. It was from a Bob Marley song. Uh, <laughs> plucking out of the Bible this biblical metaphor notice what he's saying. This stone or this cornerstone that Peter refers to is Jesus Christ. If God's people were a building, Jesus Christ would be the cornerstone. He'd be that that chief stone, that first stone that's laid in the construction of the building that that sort of sets the level for all the other stones and on which the whole building stands. He is the headstone, the chief stone, the, the cornerstone of this living temple that God is building out of living stones which are people. But a lot of people do not believe in Jesus. Verse 6 infers that whoever does not believe will be put to shame instead of honored on the day of judgment. For those who do not believe in Jesus, Jesus is still a stone. But instead of a a cornerstone, notice, he's a stone of stumbling, a stone of offense. They trip over him. And the reason they trip over Jesus is because, he told us there quite plainly in verse 8 at the end, because they disobey the word. They reject the gospel. They deny its claim on their lives. They maybe hear it and they walk away thinking nothing of it. And on the final day, the day of judgment, they are put to shame. They are cast away from God. So Peter begins with, but... So Anacostia River Church, we are not those who disobey the gospel and suffer God's judgment because of it. So he says, but you, who's the you there? Well, the you is born again believers everywhere. And we know that because Peter, how he begins his letter. So look over in chapter one, verse one, look at who he addresses. He says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, I mean sort of scattered abroad in a place called Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All over the sort of known Mediterranean world are these people to whom uh, Peter is now writing. This is, these are Christians sort of everywhere in Peter's time. And we know this applies to born-again Christians because of what he says in verse 3 of chapter 1. Do you see that there? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A Christian is someone who was spiritually dead because of sin, but who has been now given a new life. They have been raised from that spiritual death to spiritual life and given this great hope, not only for this life, but for the life to come because God raised them from the dead through faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And that, that raising them from the spiritual death is to be born again. It's to be given a new life, a spiritual life, and to have that planted in you such that you live forever the very life of God in your own soul. And that happens through faith. It happens through believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we we'll see that Peter says that for us. Look in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 1. Notice what Peter writes for us. He says, since you have been born again, that's what we're talking about, right? Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Two different types of seeds, right? One one kind of seed you plant in the ground, it doesn't last forever. It sprouts up and turns into a plant, and sooner or later, as people say, that plant will likely die. It's not that kind of perishable seed that goes away, but it's an imperishable seed. It's an everlasting seed that never wastes, that never dies. Now, notice what he says. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. That's the imperishable seed. This book lives. And it abides, it will remain forever, the truth. These words live and they give life. And notice the contrast in verses 24 and 25. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. That's that's what all human flesh is like. That's what all human seeds are like. That's what all natural seeds are like. They're like grass that withers in the fall and the winter and passes away. But verse 25, the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Perhaps you're new to Christianity. Perhaps you're new to uh, Christian church services like this one. Perhaps you're new to hearing sermons like this one. It's a great thing to be new to the word of God. It's a great thing to be new to the Bible and new to sermons. You'll hear us sometimes speaking kind of Christianese or so language that Christians use that many other people are like, what in the world are they talking about? One of those words is gospel. That's a, that's a sweet word to us. When we talk about the gospel, you've probably heard of gospel music or, or my, my, my uh, uncles used to always argue all the time. They were, they were old men in their 70s and, and 80s and uh, my Uncle Richard was the big one. He was kind of the bully of the two. I used to pick on my Uncle Gene and tell my Uncle Gene what to do. Gene, you need to do this. And Uncle Gene invariably would say, Richard, your mouth ain't no prayer book. <laughs> yo, yo, what you say ain't the gospel? You know, <laughs> ain't the gospel true?" Well, in the Bible, we have the gospel truth. And that word gospel just means what Peter says there in verse 25, good news. That's all it means is good news. And it's by hearing this good news and believing it as our own that this never dying seed, this imperishable seed which gives life, gets planted in the heart of a person and they are born again and they are made new. What is that good news? Well, that good news is the message about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that God made the world and he made all of us in his image and in his likeness. You look around the room and what you see, in some sense, in some indescribable sense, are unique creatures who bear the likeness and the image of God. That means we are of incredible worth and value. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God. And when they sinned, as our representatives, all the world was plunged into sin. And so now, rather than live for the God who made us, we live for ourselves. We we turn away from him and turn away from his word. We turn away from his commands upon our lives and we go our own way into sin. And because of that, the God who made us is angry with us. And he has appointed a day when he will judge everyone for the lives they have lived, for the sins that they have done. And the Bible says, if God should count our sins against us, who could stand? Who could stand in judgment when God, who knows our lives perfectly, begins to sort of evaluate the right and wrongs of our lives? As we see it, but as he sees it. I I know I can. But the Bible tells us something else too. There's good news. Here's the really sweet part. God loves us too. He's not just angry with us. He's not some far off God who is just full of wrath and vengeance and just waiting to send a lightning bolt to strike someone. No, God has done something quite different. He has sent his only son into the world and he sent his only son into the world to do two things for sinners, two things for people like me and like you. Number one, to obey him perfectly when we did not. And in that way, Jesus supplies all the righteousness with God that we will ever need. And number two, to die in our place to suffer his wrath. And in that way, Jesus becomes the sacrifice that we need that turns away God's anger toward us. And so because Jesus has died for us, and because he has been raised from the grave, we know that God has accepted his sacrifice. And we know that he was raised from the grave for our justification, that is, so that we would be right with God. And now God makes this promise that everyone who turns away from their sin and puts their trust in Jesus Christ as their God, as their Lord, as their Savior, will be forgiven of their sins will be declared righteous by God in the final judgment, will be born again, will live forever in the love and the grace and the goodness of God. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And that's the hope that we have. And that's the hope that you can have if you've come this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you, don't, you haven't yet believed this, this news about Jesus, even now put your faith in him. Confess your sins to God. We all have them. We all know it. No need of denying it. Rather, confess it. Agree with God that you are a sinner and then accept God's Savior. I said, God, you promised that if I would follow Jesus in faith, then all that he did to obey you would be my obedience. It would be my righteousness. And his death on the cross to atone for sin, to, to pay the penalty for sin, well, that would be my sin payment. That would be my penalty payment. And I would owe you that payment no more. And I would be reconciled to you. You promised. And I would be yours. And you would be mine. You promised. I believe you. I'm going to follow your son. If you would trust in Christ, then all that Christ is and all that Christ has done would be yours right now. This is the good news. And this is why we exist as a church. And we have been formed as a church by this good news. We, we haven't come together, if we're Christians, to, to, to launch Anacostia River Church just because we thought it was a good idea. We we haven't come together just because we think we are somehow better than some other church or we're going to do it better than some other church. No, we're going to have many failings. We're going to be a weak church. But we are formed not by our wisdom. We are formed by this message. That God has loved the world and sent his only begotten son into the world. That whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Because this imperishable seed is planted in them. This gospel. And so we would have you, if you're here this morning, believe this message. Now, if there's anything we can do to help explain it further or answer any questions, it's why we exist, Is why we're glad you're here. Don't be shy about asking us anything. And we may have to say, I don't know. We'll get back to you. But we'll walk with you to the answers if you let us. So, who are we? Well, first of all, we are born-again people. And we are, like all those other born-again people, members of God's family. We are His church. And the gospel is the oxygen that we breathe. Now, why is it so special to be God's people? Why does this matter? Well... I think Peter goes on to tell us this in the description that he gives us um, of ourselves. And so uh, that's really our second question for this morning. Why, why is this so special? Who are we? Well, we're, we're those who are born again by the gospel and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and why is that special? Well, here Peter gives us four metaphors. And notice now the third word in the sentence, but you are. That's the verb, right? You are. But it's not an active verb. It's not, it's not a, a doing word. It's not, you know, you do or you be. It's you are. It's a, it's a statement of fact. The fancy word for it is. it is an indicative. It's telling us something that is already true of us, not something that we have to seek to be. And so these four things that follow are things that are true of us right now, church. These are facts about us as God sees us. And these are things for us to rejoice in. And in the background of this text are are two other passages of Scripture. I would have you look with me there so we can consider them. The first is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. Somebody's using the Pew Bible. I don't know, Matt, if you've got that, you can haul out a page number if you like. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. Because what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 is really the fulfillment of what's been promised and what's been pictured in the Old Testament. What God said about his old covenant people, Israel. So look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 on page 152. And invite verses 6 to 8. So again, if you're new to the Bible, um, when you hear me say the chapter number, chapter 7, that's the big number. And when you hear me say the verse number, verses 6 to 8, that's the small number. Right? So we're in Deuteronomy chapter 7, big number, verse 6, small number. And God here is speaking to Israel, his Old Testament people. And notice what he says. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. That's the statement that God's prophet Moses made to Israel there when God was first pulling them together as a people. Peter has that in the back of his mind, Deuteronomy 7. And you'll see that some of the terms that Moses was using here in Deuteronomy 7, Peter picks them right up and uses them of the church in 1 Peter chapter 2. The other passage that we want to keep in mind that's kind of background here is Isaiah chapter 23. Or excuse me, chapter 43. Isaiah 43, verses 20 and 21. Page 604, if you're using one of the Bibles uh, from from the pew or provided, Isaiah 43, verses 20 and 21. Now notice Isaiah is preaching or prophesying many, many, many years later after Moses. Uh, and he's prophesying to Israel that people that Moses uh, sort of delivered from Egypt. He's prophesying to them, uh, Israel, now in, in the midst of Babylonian captivity and, and in the aftermath of that. And here's what he says. Deuteronomy 43, verses 20 and 21. That's not right. Isaiah 43, 20 and 21. He says, the, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Now here's God using as an example how he provides to the wild beasts as a way of telling his people he's going to provide for them too. And he's going to do these mighty works in their lives so that they would declare his praises to the nations. Now look back over in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. And let me read again that sentence for us and see how how Peter pulls those two things together. Notice now. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So here's one of the remarkable things about the Bible. How things that can seem like they happen in really different parts of time and seem really unconnected to one another actually stream together when you come to the New Testament and, and they are tied together in Christ and tied together in the church. What happened in your Old Testament is simply a picture that's pointing forward to what's fulfilled in us, what's completed in us through Jesus Christ. Now notice these four things that he says of us real quickly. Number one... He says you are a chosen people. You are a chosen race. Now the word race there is not the way we use race today when we talk about skin color and and we imagine then these great differences between people of skin color. No, here the word race here has to do with what we would call a kind of ethnic group. Uh, It has to do with people who share a common lineage, right? Um, And so when he uses this word race here, he's not talking about biology at all. Because what Peter understands is, is that Christ, in his crucifixion, in gathering people to himself, has actually created a new spiritual ethnicity made up of people from every background. So, 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 so my brother is from Nigeria. I'm from North Carolina. We look a lot alike, but we're from different mamas, you know. We <laughs> get different lineages, different ethnicities. And, and my brother Colin, his family is from Guyana. Match from Pennsylvania you know we, we have different ethnic backgrounds naturally but what Christ has done is made us one new family he's made us one new spiritual ethnicity and this is by God's choosing God has chosen us we are a chosen race unto God we are a new people created by the gospel and chosen by God's grace in the gospel and this is a beautiful thing beloved to be chosen. It's a wonderful thing to be picked. To be selected. To be wanted. We all have experiences If there's don't we? we? Maybe go to the playground or at school we have recess and we play kickball or basketball or football. And you got a couple of captains and they start choosing. And all the while you're standing there while they're choosing, you're thinking like, pick me, pick me, pick me. The last thing you want to be is last, right? you you standing there next to the kid that, you know, is is always sort of by themselves, don't know how to play any of the games. You're like, ooh, pick me before him, pick me before him. We want to be picked. Or the the joy and the wonder and the blessing of being being chosen when you've been going out for a while and you go out on what seems like another date, like all the other dates, and something, something different happens. He falls to one knee. And you panic. Ooh, what's what's happening here? And he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out a a box. If he doesn't have money, maybe it's just wrapped up in tissue paper or something. But he he, he pulls out something out of his pocket and and he he pops the question. Now when that happens, the lady isn't thinking, what about all the other women in the world who aren't chosen tonight? She's thrilled that he has chosen her. And in that nervous moment, when he hands her the ring and says, will you marry me? And, and she's, ooh. Now ladies, here's the thing. When he asks that question, don't be reacting all along, right? Because he's like, okay, is it a yes? It's, you know, what's going on here? And she says, finally, yes, I'll marry you. And he now has been chosen by her. This is what we're meant to feel. When we hear that the God of the universe, of all the peoples on the planet, through the gospel, chose us to be his own. And this is who we are, A.R.C. We are chosen race, chosen by the, the infinite God of heaven. And, and not only that, notice Peter goes on to say not only are we a chosen race, but he says now we are royal priesthood. What a remarkable phrase that is. You don't often find those two words together, royal priesthood. Uh, Again, he's borrowing from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel had a system where they had priests. Now, the thing about these priests in the Old Testament is they all had to be a part of the same family, the same clan or tribe. They all had to be Levites. So you could be an Israelite and would never have the opportunity to be a priest. And here's the thing. The priests were the ones who were always before God, making offerings to God, and leading the people in worship. They had no inheritance among the people. The Levites didn't receive any land among the people because God would be their inheritance, right? Their portion was to be God. And so so when Peter says, you're a royal priesthood, he's combining a couple things that are never combined because the priest never served the king. And the king was never to do the work of the priest. And whenever that happened, that went really bad. You may remember, if you know your Bibles, when King Saul got a little impatient decided he was going to make his own offerings and, and, went and made offerings before the Lord. How that angered the Lord. Or you may remember in Judges 17 and 18, uh, where this fellow decides he's going to hire a Levite to be a priest in his home. and How bad that went for everybody. But now, because Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, and we have been made to be his people, We are a royal priesthood. We we serve and worship and and come before that God who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And now this is not something that's limited to a, a special clan or a special tribe. This is something that's being said of all God's people. That if you are a Christian, you are in the most fundamental sense a priest of the living God. You're one who lives in such a way as to worship this living God. And so Peter says, look back in 1 Peter 2, verse 5. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, notice, to be a holy priesthood. Why? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You may be a stay-at-home mom, and, and you may feel the ordinariness of that task sometimes. I love the way my wife describes housework. She says it's like putting pearls on a string with you no know, knot on the bottom. You just keep putting those pearls on. They just keep falling off. It's just, a, just over and over and over again. But as you put those pearls on, washing dishes, wiping noses, kissing boo-boos, you are offering priestly sacrifices to God. And not only that, but maybe you work for a TSA contractor. And as you go to work and and as you endure the the, the cantankerous attitudes of some customers or as you have to sort of work through the the inner office politics, you do that as a priest to God. And, And you are able, Colossians 3, 24, 25, you are able to offer that, everything you do up to God as an act of worship. And through Jesus Christ is pleasing in his sight. Or, or maybe you work in some other profession. Maybe you're an attorney or a social worker. Maybe you're, you're a teacher. Maybe you're a janitor. Doesn't matter. You are most fundamentally a priest serving God, a royal priesthood serving God. So we're not to think, even though the pastors have a unique calling that's defined by scripture and so on, we're not to think that the pastors of the church or the ministers of the church are somehow some other class. That they are the priests and the rest of us are the the lowly peons. No, together as a whole community, we are a priesthood. And we offer service to God. This is the priesthood of, of all believers. All God's people are priests. Did you know that about yourself this morning? It's one of the wonderful things about being the people of God. And I pray that as you as you go to tomorrow morning, whatever tomorrow morning has for you, dropping kids off at school, um, you know, making sure you've got the week laid out at work, um, maybe being at home with the kids, maybe, maybe making an application for a job, whatever it is, whatever the, whatever the week has for you tomorrow, I pray that you go into it with some sense of as the people of God. We are the priest of God, and we get to offer the sacrifices of praise through Jesus Christ. So we are not only a royal priesthood, notice the next thing that he says there, we're also a holy nation. This is why it's special to be a part of the people of God. That we are a holy nation means at least two things. Because we are God's people, we are set apart for God's service. We, we are holy in that way. We are, we are in that way not secular, not profane. We, we are holy. We are, we are not for ordinary use. We are for the exclusive use of God and for his worship. And then the second thing it means is that we are God's people, so we must have God's character. That more and more we come to look like our Father in heaven. There's to be a family resemblance. In those two ways, in our our position and in our progress, we are a holy nation unto God. We are growing in holiness as we obey Christ, and we are already holy because we are united to Christ by faith. Let's see how Peter puts this in chapter 1, verses 14 and 16. How he uses this family imagery as obedient children, verse 14 do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. I don't know how many of you all had a father like that. That kind of father that says, boy, you're gonna do what I say. You know, don't, 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 don't do what you see me do. Do what I said do, right? You know, and uh I, I, I hate it when my, my parents had to begin a sentence with, boy, didn't I tell you? Boy, didn't I tell you? <laughs> the truth is they had to begin 2 many sentences that way with me. <laughs> boy, didn't I tell you? And sometimes they would say, if they take me to a friend's house, they say something like this. Now, uh, boy, you need to remember who you are. you know. And, and by that they meant, you, you my son, you better not embarrass me <laughs> over these people's house. You, you better mind what them people say. Now, in a much more gracious way, (laughs) verses 14 to 16, is God saying to his children, remember who you are. Remember who your father is. Do, Do as I say and do as I do. Be holy as I am holy. Be set apart from the world the way I'm set apart from the world. And be growing, be increasing in holiness that you might be conformed to my likeness and my character. And this is what it means to be the the people of God. We are a holy nation. Unlike any other nation state in the world. Unlike Israel. Unlike the United States. Unlike Zambia. Unlike Russia. Unlike China. Unlike any other nation in the world. Anacostia River Church. We are a part of God's nation, of his holy people. And we are set apart from all the other peoples of the world, not in arrogance, but because God has been gracious to us. He has loved us and chosen us. And he has conferred his character upon us, that we would be holy as he is holy. Now, let me put this in a kind of missional way. For us to be distinct from the world, we we are different from the world for the benefit of the world. We're not different from the world that we might boast in ourselves. Then we're back to being strong when we're really weak people, aren't we? No, we are different from the world that we might be a benefit to the world. That they might see the difference that living for God makes. That they might see in in the holiness of God's people the beauty of God himself. Yeah, holy is just a Bible word, another Bible word for beauty. So the psalmist will say a number of times, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, in the splendor of holiness. That we are a holy people means that we share in God's beauty and that beauty is meant to be attractive to those who are not yet God's people. What a wonderful thing to be made. A a kind of light reflecting the beauty of God. This is who we are. And this is why it's special to be who we are. Let's look at this last thing real quickly. It's special to be a part of God's people because we're also for his own possession. You see it there in verse 9? We are a people for his own possession. You may have a translation that says we are a special inheritance. This means we, we belong to God. We are a treasure to God, like the like riches left by dying parents to their children. We we have been given by the Father to the Son as a as a special inheritance, as as a special possession. God owns us. And we are his. But this is not the ownership of a corporation that's just disposing of assets. No, this is not that cold and not that distant. This is the, this is the ownership of, of people who received a, a precious gift. And we know that because of remarkable verses like Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Anybody know that one? Zephaniah three seventeen. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save Then it says this, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Stop and think about that for a moment. As ordinary as we are in and of ourselves, there's a God who has chosen us and made us his own because of his love. sings over us it's not just that we gather and we offer songs of praise to God but there's something remarkable to think that because God loves us the way he loves us that he returns the song to us and he sings over us the word there is he exalts in us he he, he delights in us there's something in him that erupts in pleasure uh, over us Because he loves us. Not because of anything great in us. But simply because he loves us. I find that simply amazing. I find it amazing that God has in these last couple of weeks called together those of us who are known by the name Anacostia River Church. Given birth to us as a church family. And he sings over us. What a remarkable thing. We are chosen. We are priests. We are holy. We are his inheritance. Let's answer one final question What is the purpose of all this? What is our purpose? We've seen who we are, the born again people of God. We've seen why that's special. Now, what's the purpose? Are we to form a kind of holy huddle and just get together with other Christians and, 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 and sort of separate ourselves from the world and just kind of slap each other on the back and say, yeah, man, you're, you're, you're a royal priest, dude. You We're know? we a holy nation. Not, you know, let, let's, let's keep away from all them other people, man. Let's just be us. And let's hunker down and let's form a little huddle, a little holy huddle. Is, is that the goal? Is that what's supposed to be happening here? No. <laughs> Thank you, brother. We have a purpose. That's not about us at all. Notice the last part of verse 9. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why Anacostia River Church exists. That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness to his marvelous light. And that's God's purpose, purpose for us coming straight from the courts of heaven. What does this mean? At least two things. Worship and witness. Worship and witness. To proclaim His excellencies is to worship Him. And we worship God when we assign worth to God. When we assign value to God. Whenever we declare that God is worth more to us than anything else, then we, we are proclaiming his excellencies. We are proclaiming that he is better than anything else that we know and have. God is worthy of our worship. In other words, when we worship God, it's not a matter of us doing something that, that he doesn't deserve. We are, we are in fact giving him what he deserves, and he deserves better than our feeble worship, right? He deserves more than that. And we are are left in the earth that God might have a worshiping people amidst all the other peoples. That they might see in our proclamation His excellencies. This is why it's good to include praise, for example, in our prayer lives. To learn the habit of praying in such a way that we meditate on the specific virtues and perfections of God. That we linger in prayer long enough to, to talk about the excellencies of God's wrath, the excellencies of His mercy, the wonder of His goodness and His love, the perfection of His, of his righteousness. That we, we pray in such a way that we, we delight in His sovereignty, and we delight in His humility. That that we stand in prayer staggering. that, That God is both transcendent and he's imminent. He's high above us and he's down here with us. That we add that to our prayer lives. And not just our prayer lives but our conversations with each other. That our conversations be inspired more by how excellent God is. By the mighty deeds that he has done. By the praiseworthy character of God. That we say more than just praise God, but we we add some descriptions to that. Praise God that, that in his kindness, he has punished me less than my sins deserve. Praise God that in his rich grace, he's given me more than my sins deserve. Praise God that He has been persevering with me in my struggles, because because He's a patient God, He's a He's a He's a He's a forbearing God. That we we learn to sort of inject into our speech the excellencies of God, that we might make Him praiseworthy among the nations, Amen. that our hearts might be set free to praise Him, and this is why we want to sing songs rich in theology. As we sing specific truths about God, his love, his goodness, his power, and so on, we are proclaiming his excellencies. We're doing that with our voices. That is why I pray our singing to God is, is never tired, it's never flat, it's never unemotional or cold. And, and I pray that we don't confuse um, genuine praise for God and the extolling of his excellencies with, with performance. That we, we never get caught up in the performance trap. But, but whether we are feeling weak that particular morning, tired that particular morning, whether we are hurting about something going on in our lives, that, that we, we learn and we are encouraged when we gather together to, to let loose in genuine praise to God. May God never save us. These people praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He never said that of us. Because we live in this worshiping purpose to proclaim the excellencies of him who snatched us from the darkness we were in that brought us into his light. We want to worship that way, but notice we all, number two, we want to witness that way. I, I infer that from... That same phrase, particularly as he goes on to say, we want to proclaim the excellencies of him who, what? Called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's that about? Well, that's a symbolic way of describing our conversion, our salvation. We we were lost in the darkness of sin. But God in his rich mercy sent Christ into our lives and we heard the good news that we talked about earlier and a miracle happened. He raised us from death to life. And he gave us the gifts of repentance and faith. And then there there was something that happened. He switched our citizenship. We we went from being that that mass of dead humanity to being among a living people who are a holy nation. He brought us out of darkness and he brought us into his marvelous light. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3. He he took us out of the dominion of darkness and he brought us into the, the kingdom of his son whom he loves. We're meant to recall how God saved us. And we're meant to tell others how they are meant to be saved. This is part of how we proclaim his excellencies. So, so when, when, when we go out on a Saturday and we, we go door to door and knock on doors and, and we, we share the gospel with neighbors and we invite neighbors to come out with us, we're going not, not just to have people come to a service. That's great, but that's a means to something else. We're going to proclaim the excellencies of the one who saved us. That it might be known and made much of. Or when we lead evangelistic Bible studies at the, at the public library, or maybe you lead one in your home. What's happening there? We are fulfilling our purpose and proclaiming the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into the light. Or, or when we in our workplaces share the gospel with a colleague. Maybe trembling a little bit for fear of of, of the boss getting upset or the colleague getting upset. But we we manage to speak of God's love through his son. We are proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're giving witness to the greatness of God and the mighty deeds of God in salvation. This is why we exist. To worship and witness our great and living God. And can I say this to you, beloved? Embrace this as a privilege. We get to do this. It's not merely that God has commanded us to do this. It's not merely that we are instructed to do this. But, beloved, you realize there is no other agency on the earth that does this. You realize there's no other religion on the earth that gives praise to the true and living God in Jesus Christ, his son. You realize that we we, we don't have anybody else standing in, in our place ready to do this, but it's given to us, the people of God, to bear witness and to worship the excellencies of God. This is a remarkable privilege that we get to wear his name And we get to tell others of his greatness. Why do we exist? We exist as a church to worship and to witness in such a way that Christ is seen to be greater than all other things. And we exist as a church to know Christ better and to love Christ more than anything else we know and love in all of creation. That's our goal. That's why we're here. We are the people of God. And we have the special status of being chosen, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special inheritance to God. And we have this great privilege of making his excellencies known. We boast in our weakness that he gets this glory. And we seek this glory that our joy might be enlarged. Let's pray God. Father, we thank you for this tremendous privilege, for this wonderful grace, for this indescribable honor, really. That you have called us, O Lord, from many walks of life. Some of us, O Lord, from rural settings, some of us from city settings. You've called us from various ethnic backgrounds. You've called us from many different social standings. Some of us, Lord... Educated, some of us not so much, some of us, oh Lord, wealthy, some of us, O oh Lord, not. And without regard to any of those things about us, you loved us. Whether rich or poor, black or white, old or young, you chose us and you loved us. And you've made us a people, O Lord. You've made us a people where there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, where there's no longer rich or poor, where there's no longer any of those things that the world divides itself over. You've made us one holy nation, one kingdom of priests. And you have given us this one joyful task to proclaim your excellencies in all the earth. So as we begin, O Lord, to live for you as a church, Help us to embrace our weaknesses, that your power will be perfected. But help us also to delight that we are the people of God. And not only us, but all of your churches. We are the people of God. And that is indescribable. Keep us unto yourself. And keep us faithful, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.